Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In November 2013, the Public Knowledge Forum brought together leading thinkers on technology, politics and the press from Australia and the United States. The event at the Sydney Opera House explored pressing questions about the future of journalism and its impact on governance and public policy. In conjunction with the United States Study Centre and Sky News Australia's APAC, the Walkley Foundation is delighted to present this series of six podcasts examining the state of journalism and asking, where to next? This episode, titled News as Serious Business, features Time correspondent Jay Newton-Small, opinion editor at US News and Word Report Robert Schlesinger, director of news at the ABC Kate Tawney, and ABC host and journalist John Barron. My name is John Barron. I'm a journalist with the ABC, presenter of ABC Fact Check, and also a research associate at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, where I teach a course in US media and politics. So this is just my bag, and I hope it is yours as well. And we will have time to uh, take some questions a little bit later as well. But first, let me introduce our panel. First, my boss. How awkward is this? Kate Tawney, Director of News at the ABC. Uh, I'm sure when she said she'd do the panel, she didn't know I was going to be facilitating it. Certainly when I was asked to do the panel, I didn't know. But I'm delighted. I'm delighted that Kate is here. Uh, So um, wish me luck. Uh, Next to to Kate Tawney, uh, Director of News at the ABC, is Robert Schlesinger, uh, who is the Opinion Editor at the US News and World Report. Possibly... Of the three big sort of news weeklies, or as was news weekly, now not weekly, and some critics say not news, but we'll get to that. Uh, less I, I well run known. opinion, so <laughs> right. I'm immune to that. Yeah, and we will talk about opinion as well in all of this, and the, and the demand for opinion now over news, and some of the reasons for that as well. And uh, Jane Newton-Small on uh, my left, as you're looking at her from Time magazine, another one of the big three. I, I, I guess there's almost a bit of a, a sense of... Uh, this whole sort of forum is is predicated on the notion that we've really been through a really interesting time in journalism in the United States and in Australia and, uh, well, economically as well as journalistically. And the way that the technology has sort of flowed through this, the fact that it's been a very disruptive period in the United States, the media has changed, uh, some organisations have gone out of business altogether, Others are looking for a new business model, and we have heard already today about the fact that this is, you know, this is a, a business issue to an extent. The, the old model, the rivers of gold, the classified ads, the advertising revenue is gone. But of course, for journalists, the, the reality of that is, well, there are half as many journalists at places like the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, Fairfax and others in Australia, cutting back on the number of reporters. And yet with the new media, the social media, the, uh, the online presence, the demand is greater than ever. Less journalists doing a lot more. And one of the things that seems is listeners and viewers are being listened to more. What do they want? Maybe that's the answer to finding this business model, finding the way towards the future. So I'd like to start with a question to each of you briefly first about this last five years. First to you, Kate, the the last five years, it has been a period of of significant change, perhaps not as economically bad in this country as it has been, and being with a national broadcaster, you're not necessarily uh, in touch with the same sort of commercial realities but you've got to attract viewers and readers and listeners and fulfil a charter. So ratings, points, clicks, just as important for you as, as anyone else, really. Absolutely, and I think for, for um, the ABC, as a broadcaster, if I think back five years or, and, and certainly ten years, um, our role as news producers and in a television and, and radio sense was to determine what we thought was news and to present a bulletin and a very one-way relationship with our audience. So for us, um, the incredible change has been the relationship with the audience. And when we look back at that, it was a fairly arrogant relationship with our audience. Um, It was us telling them what we felt was news and us expecting the audience to listen and um, digest that news. So, So for the broadcast news industry, I think that has been an absolute turnaround. All of a sudden, we have this immediate feedback, um, which I think for smart news organisations is just a gift. Suddenly, we understand that we have this dynamic relationship. We not only have access to our audience in terms of feedback and the kind of news that we're producing, but also this great source of news and information. Um, And I think that's a massive change. The technology change has 
has been enormous, but the cultural change for journalists has been significant. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some of the, kind of the, the, the ups and downs of that as well, and the challenges that it faces, and the shift in thinking for perhaps a lot of editors and journalists as well, to sort of say, is that really news? Should that be in the bulletin? Should that lead, etc. But Robert, it has been a very interesting time for, for your publication. Uh, one of the big three, but in, in a way, you've, you've been wrestling with this, where do, we, where do we make money? And then, in a journalistic sense, what do we spend it on? Right, right. I mean, when I started at US News five years ago, we were still a weekly news magazine, and we also had a website. And in fairly rapid, uh, in, in a, at a fairly rapid pace in, in the last five years, we went from publishing a weekly news magazine to publishing a, a bi-weekly news magazine to publishing a monthly news magazine to just being a just being a website, not publishing a, a regular news magazine at all. And it used to be when I started, if we the, the kind of main metric that we had to know what interested our readers and what what got them engaged about a specific issue was we could see um, how many how many uh, issues were sold at the newsstand. You have the, all the cover all the covers from from recent issues on the wall with a little number of how many were sold. Now I can go back to my hotel room, I can see exactly how many people read my last column. I can see where they came from. I can, you know, whether they came from search, or whether they came from a website, or whether they came from uh, just our, our, you know, the three people who are all related to me, who are fans of mine, and you know, type in my, type, go, go straight to my column and read it. And it, it uh, you know, is, is a, as you say, it's a sea change in how, in how we relate to our audience, and, and you know, when, when we'll get into what that means in terms of how we decide what to cover. Well, Jay, tell us, as, as a, a journalist who has spent a lot of time not just travelling and reporting around the United States, but around the world uh, on your various beats, when you've got those, that sort of awareness back in the, in the newsroom or in the, or in the management suite of, the, well, here are the stories that are going to get clicks, here are the stories that people are, are interested in, has there been a discernible effect at the coalface of, of, of the, the kinds of stories that you're going to get uh, sent to? Do they say, oh, bring, you know, bring it back from Iran, That's, no, no one's clicking on that? Um, not so much that, uh, you know, that I don't, not discernibly for me. I mean, and mostly as a magazine journalist, I think we tend to um, find our own stories and generate our own stories. And we're lucky that, you know, I'm lucky that time sort of lets me, you know, pitch my own things. I don't get a lot of dictates from down above saying do this story or do that story. Um, but I do really do sense a change in how Washington and how things have, uh, how we cover things differently. And, and it's a very, um, more of a sideways look than a, than a frontways look. So, for example, I think six, seven years ago, at the end of 2006, I was covering Hillary Clinton, who was going to run for president, um, and uh, there was a phone call of um, her announcing that she had sort of kept in $10 billion worth of cuts to Medicaid um, in the budget. This was a triumphant phone call, and there were probably about 150 journalists on this call, and there was one journalist who had put down the phone and um, started, you know, talking to a woman, and <laughs> and we could all hear him on the line, and you know, and the phone call got, you know, more and more sort of salacious, and we were like all kind of buzzing between each other, like, who is this guy? And um, and Hillary comes on the line, and she's completely offended because she's having to talk over this guy who's really chatting up this woman quite in a dirty way, and um, and and it was getting rather embarrassing, I think, for everybody. And, and it was an amazing t thing because, you know, the, out of the 150 journalists, you know, one person from New York Newsday stayed on the line and waited for the guy to finish the call and, um, and then said immediately, who are you? And it was a front page news story on Newsday saying, you know, this Long Island sort of radio guy had completely interrupted Hillary Clinton's call, but the rest of us actually didn't pay attention to the call at all or to this interruption. And we just covered the $10 billion worth of cuts um, from Medicaid. And, uh, and that today in Washington would be a completely different covered in a completely different way because you have Politico, you have so much of a sideways look, you know, the town, um, you know, the, even Game Change written by one of my colleagues, Mark Halperin. It's, it's much more gossipy, it's much more a look at um, inside the scenes and we just tend to look at news in such different ways now. And so I think that's really changed a lot um, and, and just in general of how we look at news and how we cover it. There was a lot of talk in, in some of the earlier sessions about cat videos, and we learned, in fact, uh, from Hal last time around, that the dogs are more popular than cats. Seems to me that fish are the other big thing. One, one of the most popular stories on ABC Online in the last month. Did you see this? The, the, the blobby fish that looks like a grumpy old man? <laughs> Incredibly popular as, as a story. Now, uh, with something like that, Kate, do, do you see that as... 
the, the cherry on the top? Is it the dessert that goes with the well-rounded meal? Is it wh Where do you put those Tell stories? Tell me you didn't click on that. Of course I did. <laughs> and everybody was talking about it. That's the, that's the point, isn't it? Look, I, I think the most important thing for, particularly for a national broadcaster, um, you know, we have a, have a very clear responsibility and um, we must be relevant. Uh, so I think a lot of the feedback around some of our um, content over a number of years has been that you know, we're, we're the most trusted news brand in Australia, but sometimes we can be worthy. It's terribly important that we're relevant. Um, mm. To remain valued by the community, we need to, to, to be relevant. That doesn't mean that we need to constantly be filling our online pages with that sort of content, but it's of interest. So just as you would shape a news bulletin five years ago with light and shade, so you would do the same kind of thing when you're mapping out your, your online and your digital content. Um, so I don't think it's, it's one thing or another, but I don't think we can be so highbrow as to ignore um, stories that are of interest to a range of people. So you'd argue that's a bit like the, uh, the, 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 the baby panda story that went after the weather and in the old days. And finally tonight, John. The end finally story. <laughs> now, Robert, it's been interesting with, with, your, with, with your magazine that you've, you've found... Uh, you found a niche. You know, we get a lot of talk these days online about sort of the BuzzFeed top ten, and everyone's doing the top ten puffy fish and everything else. Uh, but but you've you've been doing lists that actually require journalistic work, a right. lot of research, right. and it's become an incredibly valuable. It's almost a new business for you. First, I should say I thought we were going to talk about Kevin Bacon, the stolen pig. Ah, oh, <laughs> yes, Kevin not Bacon the, the not the fish, but yeah. <laughs> but no. I mean, U.S. News. We, I would not have a job. U.S. News and World Report would not exist anymore if. I don't, I'm not, I don't remember the exact history, but if a decade or two or three ago someone hadn't said, you know, how about we rank colleges? How about we give people the list of what the best colleges are? And then that franchise has grown and we, rank, we have best colleges, we have best graduate schools, we have best law firms, we have best hospitals, we have best vacations. And, and you know, that, that is the reason that we are, we are still in existence and then, you know, news and, and in my case, opinion is, is, you know, we're the tail along for the ride and, and I thank God for it. But it, you know, it, it is. I guess I guess you'd say that's, that's subs, the substantive upside of the kind of listicle, you know, ten cat videos uh, uh, phenomenon. Yeah, it, it seems as well, Jay, that that with uh, you've spent a lot of time on campaign politics. That it's almost like the, the great value now in in campaign politics is either in incredibly short form reports, 140 characters or less on Twitter during a debate, for instance or the long analytical pieces that, that, that come out. Why do you think there has been this kind of divergence in, you know, to the, sort of the, the ultra-short and the, the, sort of the in-depth? I mean, um, certainly for us, we see, I mean, people have keep, keep sort of saying that long format is dead, that it's never, you know, that, you know, we can't sell it. And I would say to those, those critics, um, you know, as Jim said yesterday, that the Atlantic is having some of the best years that they've had. We're actually, you know, we've been hiring like gangbusters at a time and we're actually having a good year too. And, and we've actually never lost money. Um, and we, and we, um, and our number one edition that we sold this year was a 24,000 word um, story by Stephen Brill on Medicare, <laughs> which you would never imagine that anybody would have that much interest in. And yet it was this huge hit online and it was a huge hit in sales. And it really sort of showed us that there is still a huge appetite for this and it can you can sort of monetize it successfully. And I think you add to that the Twitter world. I think Twitter in some ways, you know, Jay Rosen was talking earlier, I think maybe it was Jay Rosen or someone else about how um, online, people treat online as like an advertisement. And I do think of Twitter as kind of like an advertisement, you know, I mean, so you have like the headline of your stories that go by and then you can follow it down the rabbit hole. And then the rabbit hole in our case is, is really long and big and you can sort of read into it as much as you like. But I do think it's, you know, in that sense, um, sort of this, this sort of almost like cubist 3D um, you know, take on an event, which is really interesting in Twitter, but then also, um, you know, you can go down so many different fun rabbit holes and, and that's, uh, to me, where the divergence has gone. I think, um, just following on from that point, a program um, uh, like Four Corners is, is, you know, our equivalent to the long form. And the beauty about what that production team has been able to do is to acknowledge that, in fact, only a portion of that audience is going to sit down on a Monday night and watch that program. Um, my 16-year-old, I, I couldn't pay her enough to sit with me on a Monday night and watch, that, uh, watch Four Corners. And yet that is a vital part of her news digest. 
but she has never sat and watched the schedule. She gets all of that uh, through online and mobile. And it's often in segmented pieces. So I think understanding that there's an audience for your content in a range of different ways and being smart enough to understand how to segment that content and make that attractive to a range of audiences. Now, my daughter may often is, is brought back to that 45-minute program, but it's not through a schedule. So understanding the value of that and, and the rabbit holes are really important because sometimes they lead back to the, the longer form. So the technology provides different ways of delivering to people when they want it, what they want, and, and so on. There's a, there's a process, though, of selection here. We know we're all becoming curators of our own information environment. Robert, when you're, you know, I guess, when you're in the business of, of, of editing, that's something that you sort of, uh, well, that's, that's what you do. You make these judgments. You right, make these right. decisions. What are we going to run? When that's taken away from you, when people say, this is what I'm going to read, I'm going to take this, and you can see what they're, what they're doing, how does that affect your role? Well, there's also, I implicit in that is the idea that people, that you know, we, the editors or, or journalists, were once the gatekeepers, and now the people are the gatekeepers. And that's true in a sense, but we also have to keep in mind there's a, there's a third gatekeeper in, in play. Because when, when I want to find out about Kevin Bacon, the stolen pig, <laughs> I don't necessarily go to uh, the ABC's website or to the Sydney Herald's website. I go to Google and I type in Kevin Bacon, the stolen pig. And Google is deciding what the selection of stories that are available to me uh, that, that I'm then making the decision from, and, or Yahoo. And you know, Pew did a study a couple of years ago that looked at where news sites get their traffic. And they found that there were three sites that were, were, um, were the only sites that would uh, give, send more than 10% of traffic to, to the major news sites. And it was Google, and it was Yahoo, and it was the Drudge Report. And you know, Google and Yahoo, they, their algorithms work in their mysterious ways, and, and we're all trying to figure out how, how to crack that so we can get our story on the first page when people do, the, do their searches. But the Drudge Report has a specific uh, point of view, and it has a specific kinds of stories that it wants. And uh, you know, I think that has, that has an effect, both, both in terms of how things are assigned and, hey, can we get something on Drudge? But, also, and then, but then, in a very different way, the, the fact that Google and Yahoo you know, we write headlines to make to to try to get to do something better on, on Google, and it's I think it's important to keep in mind that there's sort of an invisible gatekeeper set of new set of gatekeepers in, in play here. Jay, what do you think of the the, the notion that says um, that if too much autonomy is given to the consumer, it's a little bit like um, the voters always getting their way through daily opinion polls, and and that it leaves no room for leadership in politics or for news judgment in, in, in news organisations. To actually say, look, you, you may not understand Syria, you may not be interested in Syria, but, but you probably should, so let me try and explain it to you. Let me, let me try and you know, give you some facts on this story. I mean, I think every news organisation will tell you that you're going to lose money on foreign news. We certainly do. And I, I remember covering, for example, the earthquake in Haiti, and we just knew it was going to be a total money hole, like we were not going to make any money off of doing a special edition on Haiti, but there are just some things you have to to, to cover. I mean, they're just enormous and, and they're such huge fundamental newsmakers um, that, that sort of change the way we look at things. You have to cover them even if you know you're going to lose money doing so. Um, but I do know, I mean, I do think that Washington is certainly an example of you can't really govern by crowdsourcing, and that is becoming increasingly, you know, by popular demand, it feels like everybody is, you know, um, making it, it, it doesn't feel like um, sort of the adults are in the room and making decisions anymore. It's like the crowd, the mob is running things. And, um, and to some degree, and not only in the journalism, but also in the, in the politics, I think almost especially in the politics. And I wrote a story four years ago called um, Welcome to the Circus uh, in time. And it was all about how um, politicians, you know, had figured out that if they go to the floor of the House or the Senate and they say something incredibly bombastic um, and then it goes viral online and then they go on MSNBC or Fox and then it doubles down and they like, raise a money bomb of a million dollars off of it and that's sort of how they raise money these days and that kind of crowd enraging and that kind of crowd um, sort of direction of news um, is becoming more and more popular and more and more likely in Washington which is really disturbing. You could argue it led Ted Cruz to filibuster and exactly. then Exactly. the charge for a shutdown of the US government. Yeah, exactly. And so you see that more and more. It's like the, the crowd, the mob is running the, the show. And it's sort of, um, and, it's, and you just wonder sometimes at some point living, you know, living in Washington, when are the adults going to come back to the room and actually kind of, you know, 
run things. Um, and, and, to, and to some degree, I think you could say the same about some you know, news sites and some editing in the sense of like you look at some websites and it's literally all crowdsourced and aggregated and it's just whatever's most popular and whatever's most emailed. And it, whether if it's Kitties or Kevin Bacon and his pig or whatever it is, and you don't see almost any hard news on, on some sites increasingly. And that is disturbing to me because I do feel like we're missing a, a strong editorial hand um, at times, both in Washington um, in terms of news and in, in terms of politics. Kate, increasingly the, the foreign correspondent, instead of being sort of, you know, sent off to, to somewhere for five years to, to file sort of a story when a war starts after two years or something and then you don't hear from them, it, it's more of a fly-in, fly-out model now. Um, to what extent is that just because th that's not nearly as expensive as putting somebody and their family in a jungle somewhere in case something happens? Or is that about the short attention span of audiences? They don't want somebody covering this one story. The, year, you know, the war in Syria has been going on for two and a half years. You don't want to put some person there. They can be going all over the place. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure that I entirely agree with you about a fly-in, fly-out model. We've got 13, 12 bureaus around the world. have just come back from Beijing, where our correspondent has been there for seven years. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly think that we've made significant and long-term investments. Um, but, uh, you know, cases like Syria, yeah, it's a difficult story to tell. But um, I, I think it's, if you had unlimited funds, of course, you would be investing long-term in, in those sorts of areas to be able to, to uh, demonstrate and tell the story of, uh, of that. Um, unfolding. That's not the case anymore. However, we have a Middle East Bureau who have a speciality in that particular area. Um, I, th I think in a way, um, being dynamic and, and agile enough to, uh, to respond to the story is always incredibly challenging and we'd love to have more money to pour into uh, that flexibility internationally. But I think we've got a pretty big footprint and a, and, um, a fairly versatile footprint at the moment. The decision, though, to uh, even if you have an established bureau, when you know that uh, if a, there's a big story there, you, you're going to have demands from radio, TV, online, many, many platforms, so you'll perhaps send reinforcements. Yes. Uh, is, that, is that based on uh, judgments, including the level of public interest in this story? I mean, you know, is, the, is that feedback loop now with the news consumers informing those kinds of choices? Look, you know, to Jay's point um, before in relation to Haiti, there are stories that we know that we need to cover and that we need to cover in a way that, um, that are, you know, do make that story compelling to the audience. Um, I remember having discussions a couple of years ago with some state editors who run our state newsrooms um, around commissioning of, of international stories. International makes up a huge component of our... Um, of our bulletins and our online presence and ensuring that, in fact, the way we told those international stories was, in, in fact, uh, relevant to their local audiences. And it was a really uh, productive conversation because it came back to telling those stories through people rather than the politics of a situation, really making sure that we were telling those stories in a way that was of interest to a broader audience, um, not just an audience who had a specific interest in foreign affairs. Robert, yours is a... Is a is a last name and a and a bow tie that is associated with uh, with history and, and journalism in the in the United States. Uh, it, it seems that history has uh, evolved from once was the time you know up until the middle of the 20th century. It was kind of the way it was taught was all what great men said on great occasions and that kind of thing. And then it became more sort of well how the people felt about this and and how it impacted real people's lives. Is that where we're going? with more journalism now, that, that because we're now hearing what people are interested in, that which we might have thought was trivial or secondary, the colour, the movement, how this actually affects real people, is coming to the surface, or is that just sort of wishful thinking on my part? Um, I, th I think, it, I think, it, I think it, there is an element of that. I mean, I think, I think generally speaking, the, the great thing and also the downside about the, the current journalistic moment we're in is that the answer to virtually every question is yes. Is it better? Yes. Is it worse? Well, yes, it's that too. And, are, and so are we seeing more of that? Yes, we are in good ways, and we're also seeing it in, in, in ways of, you know, people, you know, we get absorbed in people's trivialities on, on Twitter and, and, you know, talking about their, the Kardashians or what have you. So I think, you know, we're, we're in this moment where 
there's great, there's, there's great, great possibilities and, and great possibilities for downside, and it's, and it's finding the right balance and finding, finding the balance between, you know, we're going we're gonna to pursue this story not because we think it's a particularly good story, or we're going we're to have some of this beat, not, not because we think there's great intrinsic value in it, but you know what? People want to read about it, and so we have an obligation either to our investors or to ourselves in, in staying uh, profitable to, to, to cover it. But at the same time, Haiti is an incredibly important story, and we're going to cover it even though we don't, we don't think that it's, it's going to have that same kind of palpable return. But I think a lot of us in journalism, you know, we certainly didn't do, go into it to get rich, right? <laughs> I mean, we went into it because we think that there is, a, there is a, a, an important role for it, and there is a greater good to be fulfilled. And to the extent we can, and to the extent the current situation allows us to, we, we try to do that. We try, and try to find that balance. Jay, you gave us that great story about the, uh, the conference call during Hillary's campaign. The most recent presidential campaign in the United States, uh, it, it seemed to be characterised by gaffes. Gaffes that were often uh, sort of very quickly tweeted out by journalists sort of in the bubble and, and sent out and this was suddenly a talking point on cable news within 10 minutes. You know, Rick Perry said this or whatever it, whatever it might be. Right. Well, what's your thought on this? Because we've had a lot of discussions so far today about sort of the, the relative merits of, you know, what is, what is important news, what is not, um, with something like Rick Perry forgetting the third... Uh, the department he'd like to cut, yeah. Of, yeah. And, then, and then not thinking of it. And, I mean, does that actually tell more voters more things about this candidate than his policy on border protection, for instance, or Medicare? Um, actually, instead of taking Rick Perry as an example, I wanna, <laughs> I'm going to turn it a little bit. And um, I covered the, the Boston bombing. Um, and mm. I was, you know, I, I literally drove into um, the shootout with, with Tamara Lynn Sarnayev. And I was, you know, all night in Watertown with the police, and um, and it was it was amazing to me the number of notes I got from people on my desk, you know, saying, well, Reddit is saying it's this brown college student, and you know, Reddit is saying this, and we're hearing from readers that, and and just the the way that that, and I wasn't watching CNN at the time, but my understanding is that you know the cable nets all night long were really driven by, I mean, essentially mass audience rumors, you know, and. Um, and that, to me, is really dangerous for news because, you know, and my editors were saying, at least one of my editors was at one point saying, well, maybe we should include this in the story. And I was like, look, I'm only going to report what I see in front of me. And I'm not going to report, like, anybody's rumors or anybody's, you know, speculation because that's very dangerous. And, um, and it might not, you know, get us clicks because it might not be the, the breaking news story that, you know, that everybody's flocking to. But in the end, I think that, um, and, and I'm a conservative journalist in that sense, I think you can only really report what you know and, um, and you have to really watch, you know, when people are trying to sort of, you know, especially in this day and age, what the audience wants is often not right. And, and in, the, in that specific case, there were specific individuals mm -hmm. who were identified as on, on, you know, online people saying, people in, in good faith trying to help out, but there were specific individuals who, who were then in, in a sense, in, or in a real sense, endangered because they didn't have anything to do with it, but they were, you know, thanks to crowdsourcing, they were identified. And I think, that, I think that's exactly right. That, I mean, it isn't, it, it's dangerous and it's irresponsible. As a director of a news organization, mm. Kate Tornio, th th this is a, a, a classic case of, of, of new media and old media colliding. Yeah. New media, you know, in having so much information, not all that good. Mm. I thought that was, that was a real moment for journalism. And, and um, the way that played out for, for us um, was that uh, our news gathering desk, like news gathering desks around the world, were faced with, um, you know, just this avalanche of, of information and our, um, our broadcast competitors, our 6pm uh, television bulletins, um, uh, most of whom went with uh, incorrect um, information and, and we go to where it's 7 o'clock and so for that news gathering desk it was a really interesting time. Um, we had lots of discussion around the information that was available. Um, lots of information around um, how we treated that information without ignoring it completely, but how we, uh, we kind of just re re reverted to first principles without being able to verify the information. We weren't prepared to run with that information, and yet, um, you know, the pressure of seeing reputable news organisations as well as trusted social media sources um, report that information. It was an interesting moment, but yet, you know, again, if you return to your first principles and for the ABC, um, you know, trust is absolutely everything. 
And um, for me, it was a moment, um, and a moment of great pride, because not one EP or state editor um, called me to argue the case about running that information. And I'm so proud to run an a news organisation um, where that is just not an issue. You know, the, the, uh, the need to maintain and nurture the trust in the audience is terribly important. Is it hard to resist, though, that, that correction culture, the never wrong for long approach to, to website journalism, uh, if they are your competitors? No, it's not, because the value of a trusted news brand is so important, and that is in the DNA of the journalists who work at, at the ABC. So, um, you know, the not wrong for long <laughs> philosophy is simply not, not part of what we do. I would much prefer to be right than to be first. Um, and yes, there's a pressure, but to watch that newsroom on that particular night and to know that we were all standing together, possibly being absolutely creamed on that story, but quite comfortable that we had um, particular values that we weren't prepared to compromise. I think, that's, I think that's important, and in a way, it simplifies things. If you know what, where your line in the sand is, and you know what your values are, and you know what your first principles are, and that they are absolutely part of the DNA of your organisation, then I think that simplifies a terribly complex environment. Robert, the, the, the Boston bombing is an interesting example because, in a way, it was a, a made-for-media event. Right, right. Uh, the bombing at the finish line of a marathon when there are cameras on it, it was immediately carried live on cable news. They're getting all this information. It played out over the course of that week, including the chase and everything, almost like you know, binge-watching a, a box set of Homeland. It, it, and it all happened in this time. There's tremendous pressure to sort of say, who are the bad guys, find them, etc. What if the audience says, you know what, I don't mind a bit of bad information. We get fake leads in Homeland all the time. Yes, he's on our side. No, he's not on our side. <laughs> if people actually want... Say, look, you know, don't tell me what's good or bad information. Just give me the information. I can, I can decide. And I, and, I, and I think it's worth noting that it's not just the Boston bombing. I mean, it was... What, mm. I mean, it was I remember on 9-11 running down to the Washington Mall because there were fires in the mall, and then there was a, there was a bomb at the State Department. And you know, it, goes through, it goes through the Boston bombing, it goes to the TSA shooting on Friday where uh, someone tweeted out that the former head of the NSA had been shot in, in the shooting and was dead. Mm -hmm. And, and some, one of the British papers picked that up and, and reported that. Um, you know, I guess in this expanding media universe, there, are, there will be roles, there will be places that are willing to do that, and if people want to go to that, that's their business. I think that self-consciously responsible news organizations should be responsible. And I think that, you know, you, you could watch CNN, watch any of the, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and any of these breaking news moments where there's a big thing going on, um, you know, that, now they kind of pat, pat themselves on the back because they don't actually report the rumor. But they say, what we're hearing, and we haven't confirmed this yet, so it may not be true, but what we're hearing is that X and Y and Z happened. And it's, let's, you know, that's great that you're couching it that way, but it's still kind of a cop-out because if, if you are a self-consciously serious news organization, you should go to have those first principles and, and not do the cop-out and say, you know what, if, if you wanna, if you, we're going we're gonna to report facts, facts as we have them, and, and we're going we're gonna to leave the rumours big. And I think, you could, I mean, I think, um, I think there's a kind of arrogance in, in not um, acknowledging where your audience is. So, so for us, it was absolutely a matter of saying, the facts that we have available, the, this is the information that right. we know. Um, you know, we, we know that there's a range of other, fa other uh, um, uh, you know, uh, pieces of information out there, but I think you can't kind of roll it back for the audience. You know that your audience has a range of access to, inf uh, to other information, um, but I think having, a, having the confidence to know where your line in the sand is is important. Mm. And it's also dangerous sometimes to, to sort of go down these you know, paths where you, I mean, you're, you're, I'm just trying to think of, you know, for example, when the Capitol was on lockdown and there was that right. woman who'd driven mm -hmm. her car in and there were all these rumors that like, 
you know, senators have been killed and people have died and like, and, and you, you, you report something like that and, and it can be quite dangerous. I mean, the outcomes of, you know, that like, you know, they'll evacuate entire buildings in the Capitol based off of news reports, essentially. <laughs> and so, um, and, and that can cause panic. It could cause somebody to get trampled. I mean, there's, there, you have to just be so careful these days um, in the way that your news is disseminated and making sure that you are responsible with delivering, I think, the facts. I thought it was quite interesting though, um, Boston, just in the way that, um, um, social media reacted to, to that as well. I think you kind of saw um, a sense of um, uh, a, a sense of responsibility um, within Twitter users and Reddit users. Once, in fact, there was an understanding of the danger of misinformation, mm. um, and I think we're seeing more of that. I just think we're seeing a more responsible kind of um, collective um, uh, response to that. So, to, to sum up for, for each of you, from your, your own perspectives, you, you talk, Kate, about, uh, about your organisation becoming more responsive and perhaps sort of less sort of judgmental, distant and sort of say, you know, and these shall read the news as I hand it down in these tablets of stone. Uh, and, and yet, there, there is, there, there's also this sense that uh, there is a professional responsibility that the people in these jobs have to make these well-informed decisions about is this is it now right to put this information out there and and to not be pressured into doing that if it, if the you, you know you haven't got the two sources independently confirming it or whatever the your rule of thumb is i think i think too it's this this uh wonderful capacity now to um to let a story evolve and to to ensure that we've got a partnership with the audience in telling that story as it, it, it evolves as well um, so, you know, the, the role of news organisations now in trying to make sense of the mountain of information, but in doing so with, uh, with the audience and, and having that partnership is terribly important. I think the, um, our user-generated content, I, I started as a radio, um, a talkback radio producer, and in a way you had that, that similar mm. engagement with the audience and it was an ongoing engagement and a, immediate feedback. Sort of an extension of that, um, but the value to to us as journalists, and I think to us as um, as editorial leaders, uh, is extraordinary. And Robert, in your instance, you've you've got a a brand that is still powerful and credible, even to shift it into a new area of information. Do you do you envisage that that shift is going to change? How's the relationship with the audience going to be? What are you going to be providing for them of value? Um, what, um, what do you mean by the shift into the new area of when, when, when it came to your, technology? You know, or yeah, and also and also in terms of the subject matter that you're doing uh, with uh, with with your publication, providing the kind of the, the lists, the, the analysis, these sorts of things. We're seeing organisations now that are going into sort of infographics and uh, and finding new ways of providing information that may not be in the twenty four thousand word story. Right, and it's you know this is an ongoing discussion that we have in our organisation. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. Of Again, how do we find this balance, and how do we how do we you know use the use the tools that are are now available to us, whether it's through uh, infographics or through uh, greater and, and and you know thinking about how how to engage the audience and how to how to whether it's through SEO and and getting them through Google or 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 going through greater uh, social sharing and and sort of penetrating the social circles in Facebook, as the previous uh, panel talked about. Um, you know, you could, I could give you a question, or I could give you, I, the answer I give would probably be different from the one six months from now, and, and we can come back a year from now, and, and the, the, the landscape is, is totally changing, and that's part of the thrill and also part of the kind of heart, heart palpita palpitation causing <laughs> uh, nature of the current media era. Yeah. Jay, you, yours, I guess, is the kind of career that most journalism students dream of when they sort of think of, you know, being that, that reporter that gets to go to trouble spots or to follow the big events, to be there as history is, is happening, whether it's a, a speech from Barack Obama when he's announcing his improbable run for the presidency and so on, right through uh, to Boston. Uh, do you see that as being a career that will endure for 20 years, 30 years from now, or is this is this the, is this the end of that? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I mean, look, I, I think to me, um, 
I'm so, I, I, I'm, you know, maybe because I am the one that goes and, and, and covers these things, but I think it's so important to have people on the ground. And I think it's so important to have journalists, you know, there, physically there, witnessing these things and actually covering these things like Boston and not like sitting in a dark room, like comparing photos of students who might or might not be these bombers, you know what I mean? And like, um, I think it's, in, Getting that first-hand news, getting that first-hand sense, I think is absolutely crucial to the news and being able to not just report, you know, the most immediate reports, but also to do long-term analysis of this stuff. You know, when you, you know, so, you know, when I'm writing a story for time, like for the Oklahoma tornadoes, for example, you know, I'm writing um, the online sort of stories, which will go immediately, like right, right away, and then, and then a larger cover, which will be sort of 5,000 words, which does a huge analysis of, you know, with other people, obviously, like, you know, there's a group of us banding together to write, you know, big cover about, um, you know, that's 5,000 words about what this tornado means and whether early warning systems, you know, are effective and, and, and things like that. So, I mean, I think um, I really do hope that the future of journalism involves, you know, people, you know, who are on the ground who can see these things for themselves because I think that is the true value of journalism. And I also think that, not to pump up our profession too much, but <laughs> I think journal, what journalism is gets undersold and, and underestimated. And I think, I think there's a tendency among some people to say, oh, well, I can write down what the president says, and I can, I, I can sort of do the transcribing thing, so I can to be, be a fair, journalist, To be fair, there's a lot too. of stenography in the White House press corps. And there is a lot of stenography in the White House press corps, and there's a lot of stenography in journalism, but you know, the kind of journalism that you're talking about mm -hmm. requires experience. And, and you know, whether it's covering disasters or uh, breaking news or covering the White House, covering Congress, and having having the experience and the sense to be able to, to say, well, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. And, and you know, it, it, we're, 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 we don't, no, you don't have to go to school to, or get a degree to be a journalist. I mean, you can, but mm -hmm. the best way to become a journalist is to go be a journalist. And so I think, in a sense, we're not, we're not doctors. We don't, we don't have, we're not seen as having this special, these specialized skills. But I think we do have these specialized skills. And, and, it's, it's hopefully well, something people will, pay, will keep paying for. Another one of the things that it seems audiences are demanding, they're certainly getting it in US media, is not just what happened today, but what should I think about what happened today? Make it, make it quick for me. You know, don't just give me the, the raw data, chew it up a little bit, and, and, I'll, and I'll decide what I think about this as well. For, for you, Kate Tawney, your organisation is one that is required not to have opinion. How do you compete when you've got people that are already providing a semi-digested product here? Yes. Um, I think the value of journalism has always been social capital, so having, having the capacity to engage in a conversation about social events and the things that are happening around you. Um, and, uh, yeah, our role as a national broadcaster is quite different to the role of, of other news organisations. Um, so it's making sense of what's happened today. Um, what, is, what does that particular news event mean and, and where might that be heading? So it's, it's really making sense of what has happened rather than, um, uh, you know, Context sort of and analysis rather than opinion. Yeah, that's right. Robert, in, in, in the United States now, they're, they're, people do talk a lot about the kind of ideological cul-de-sacs that people are now living in because they, they do choose which magazine, which radio station, which cable channel they're going to... And there's this echo and amplifying effect. Uh, is that just uh, because people are competing, competing in an open market and, uh, and they're entitled to choose country music over, over folk music if they want to? Uh, or is there a concern? I think there is a concern. I think, and I think especially if you look at what's happened to the Republican Party, and I'm, I'm a progressive, so you can take, take my point of view as, as it, as from where it comes from, but... You know, the GOP has, has, has got this kind of media industrial complex going on where their people, their, their base partisans watch Fox News and they listen to Rush Limbaugh and they read redstate.com and they think that, yeah, the, the government shutdown was, was a, could somehow have led to uh, repealing of, of, of Obamacare. Or they think in, in late October 2012, or the first days of November, November 2012, yeah, Mitt Romney's going to win. You know, I, I, I saw Dick Morris on Fox News tell me so, so, so the momentum is on our side. And, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that it, it is better to have some sort of shared reality rather than being able to just completely disassociate yourself and, and, have, and live entirely in the world of, of, your, of your preference. 
And Jay, are you confident being able to keep the, the wolves of opinion from, from the door, that uh, the pressure to sort of uh, to take, a, take a slant on a, on a story, tell people what to think is, uh, is going to increase? Um, I mean, certainly it has already increased. I mean, Washington has changed enormously. You know, I, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post in 2007, which talked about um, how the Associated Press had decided they were going to stop doing, well, not stop doing, but in addition to doing um, sort of straight news, they started to do analyses, quote unquote. But those led to stories with headlines from the AP, like, I miss Hillary. I mean, and they were totally opinion pieces. And it was, you know, to me, um, and I'm a former Wire reporter, I should say, so like, it's, it was sacrosanct. You know, the whole AP, to me, should be, you know, really just straightforward news. Give me your facts, and that's really all I want from the AP. And, 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 um, and they really bummed me out, like, that, you know, that they were, they were sort of joining the bandwagon of Washington opinionating. Um, I mean, look, we're always going to have analyses. Like, we, you know, at the end of the day, we're living through these stuff, and, you know, and, and we will come to an opinion uh, or some sort of judgment of, like, what happened and, and share it. Um, but I think uh, there's a really big distinction between that and sort of, um, you, you know, coming to it with a preformed opinion and then pre-selecting your facts and ideas and, 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 and then presenting that um, in a way that uh, bolsters your case. And, and I, I think it's a tough struggle in Washington and, and, and elsewhere to try and balance those out. Now, that, that bell means either it's time to take questions or that Tinkerbell's alive. I'm not, I'm not sure which one is <laughs> But let, let's go with the questions thing. So uh, we have the, the microphone here. Uh, and if you could keep them relatively concise, uh, we'll try and get through as many questions as possible. Apparently nobody has any. Well, I guess no. we've answered all questions. <laughs> no questions this is the at all. This is the first panel today that we've just gotten everything exactly right. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that, that's, that's most gratifying. Um, well, that's, that's terrific. Um, if we can perhaps wrap up with the, with the panel to, to talk about, at the end of this process, uh, has anything greatly changed in this period that we feel as though the business model has changed, the technology has changed, we're consuming media differently, the relationship with audience has changed. And yet some would say, Kate Tawney, well we've always we've always had circulation figures, we've always had ratings points, we've always had ways of measuring. It's just now it, it, we, we can find out faster whether they like our stuff or not. You know, do, do, do you feel as though there's been a, a dramatic shift? I do, and for um, an organisation like the ABC, the dramatic shift is that suddenly we have access to audiences um, who might not previously have tuned in to, to our content. So all of a sudden, this opportunity for the audience to share content um, is, is uh, fantastic for a place like the ABC. So, um, you know, that, that's making us uh, want to ensure that our content is relevant to broader audiences. We have a responsibility to uh, deliver news to, uh, to broad audiences. So this opportunity is, is just a enormous for us and so understanding how that's working, understanding the metrics around that, um, terribly important. Our traditional metrics are important, uh, so the number of people who tune in to, to us in a sh on the schedule is important. Um, but I think that for journalism, um, finding new metrics is important as well. So the impact of a story, um, beyond the number of, of people who tune into the schedule, the impact of a particular story and understanding how we can measure that will be important for, uh, for journalism generally. And Robert, in, in, in your case, I, I imagine there's sort of greater uncertainty in the US media landscape than in sort of the, uh, the publicly funded media sector in Australia. Oh yeah, no, I mean, and, and again, you, you have to find that balance of, of the bottom line um, and, and doing what the stories that should be done. But it's, you know, these metrics and, and social share and all these things are tools. And the question is, on an on a organization by organization basis, as well as uh, sort of norms of the industry, how do we use those tools? And is it simply, we're gonna chase page, page views. And if that means kitty videos or dog videos, because I guess that's the, the popular thing, then it'll be dog videos. And if that means watching Google News and, and seeing what's trending or, then, or, or chasing the Drudge Report, then we're, we're going to do that. Or do you say, um, I guess the, the other extreme would be we're going to ignore, we're gonna ignore traffic and, and do what we think is best and, and you know, hope for the best. Um, but that's something that all of our organizations are struggling with. And as I said, we'll, we'll continue to and we can check back every, you know, every year for the next decade and, and see where we all are. 
And do you think, Jay, that the, the, the level of public engagement, uh, we talk about social media in the Arab Spring and so on, that, that, that this, is, this is changing the news as it's happening as well as changing the way it's being reported? I, I do. Um, and like I said earlier, I think of Twitter as um, like a cubism. You know what I mean? Like, you know how you look at a cubist painting and it's meant a 2D representation of a 3D event. And I, I look at Twitter kind of like that, where um, especially for breaking news events like the Arab Spring or, you know, what's going on in Cairo and Tahrir Square or, you know, even the Green Movement in Iran. Um, and you really get this amazingly unique view of the news. Um, and, and that's really so new and so interesting. You can not only see, you know, what the news, news take is of it for Time Magazine or for US News and World Report or for the ABC, but you can also see what people on the street are saying and what people, you know, who are witnessing it are saying. And that's so valuable, I think, and so interesting to see. Um, and, and so I think that is really changing, certainly, the way we do journalism, and it's become a major resource for us. And, and, uh, and, and you know, I think it's, it's much more interactive. You know, being able to tweet at activists, where are you, what's going on, tell us, like, and then reporting what they're tweeting, you know, <laughs> and, um, and that's, that's cool. Yeah, well, that's a nice positive note to end on as well. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank our panel? Oh, we have a question. <laughs> Gee, what's the question? Um, hi, thanks. Um, my question is that given in you know, the, the age of instantaneous news, there's a perverse incentive sometimes to report on stories based on rumours. And given that, as we heard, this can even be dangerous, do you think that there is a need for stronger media regulation? Kate. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, look, I, uh, you know, again, coming back to uh, um, Boston, there's no need for stronger media regulation in, when you're dealing with a story like that. Um, there's absolutely a need for very clear editorial leadership um, and a commitment to the principles of good journalism. That's not nothing to do with media regulation. That's about the, uh, I suppose, the integrity of the news brand. They do talk in the United States about bringing back the, the fairness doctrine of trying to, uh, to make it a part of your licence conditions to be actually fair and balanced rather than, quote, fair and balanced and, and <laughs> so on. Do, do you think there is a greater role for regulation in the United States, Rob? I don't think at this point. I think that there is a role for, as you said, as Kate says, leadership. I think there's a role for criticism. And, and, and there's a role for going back after a Boston and saying, hey, wait a second, mm. media, you got, you got this, 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 and this. I mean, sort of on a rolling basis, almost everything that was initially reported was wrong. Um, and, and there's a role for uh, trying, to, trying to have self, trying to get self-correction. Um, but, you know, we have, in the United States, we have the First Amendment, and, and freedom of the press is, is quite sacrosanct. And I'm very leery of, uh, you know, legal ways of, of trying, to trying to, even with the best, best of intentions, trying to interfere with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think any journalist wants to be regulated more or wants more rules about how we do anything. And, you know, and if you bring back the fairness doctrine, you know, um, it, it's, uh, I mean, who's going to say what's fair? The government? Um, and that's, that's not cool either. I mean, I, I don't know that I trust them to figure out what's fair any more than I trust Reddit or, you know, any, my editors or anybody else. I think it's, it's all so subjective. Um, and, and I think it's just a learning process and a way that we're covering the news is just changing so quickly that we're all still trying to get our footing in this shifting sand and figure out how to do it best and, and, and not sort of screw it up too much. <laughs> and I think what you saw after Boston too with, was with, uh, whether it was news organisations or um, social media sites, um, really going through a process of self-reflection and, um, and very public commentary about what they got right and wrong. Um, and that's probably the best form of regulation that we could hope for. All right. Well, thank you very much for your question. Any more questions? <laughs> all right, but, then. There's the bell. All right. Well, thank you all very much. It's been a pleasure to have you all here. We thank our guests, Jane Newton-Small, Robert Schlesinger and Kate Tawney. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley's news and events.